Well, uh, my name's Dan. Uh, if you're new with us, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, man, so good to get to know you. I love Easter. Uh, I love uh, getting to connect and see some families uh, together and smiling and playing games and taking pictures, uh, uh, wearing uh, those Easter best. This is about as good as I dress up these days. Uh, this is about as uh, best it can get for me. Uh, but man, I love seeing all you guys. There's a lot of things I love about Easter, um, but mainly what I love about Easter, I think, is, uh, is really summarized uh, in a quote by a famous author. And theologian Frederick Beekner, and this is what he said. He said, Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. There's a lot of bad things going on in the world, uh, isn't there? I mean, uh, maybe even in your life. I mean, I look out, uh, I see a faces today. We had the same thing at nine, a lot of people coming through. And uh, I, I get the privilege and, and kind of the daunting task oftentimes to know some things that are going on in people's lives. And a lot of times I'll look around the room and I'll see a mixture of smiles and I'll see a mixture of kind of forced smiles through some songs and, and things like that. Because uh, we all, let's be honest, we all have some things going on in our life. I mean, there, there's some things that you walked in with. Uh, maybe, like I said earlier in my prayer, I mean, it's just been a hard year. I mean, this has been a crazy, crazy year. Uh, and for some of us, it's brought on strained relationships. Uh, for some of us, maybe strained finances. Um, you know, there's been some things going on in your life. Maybe this past year, quite honestly, uh, you lost someone that was really dear to you, someone close to you. Uh, and you want to celebrate on Easter, but you're still, you have that abiding sense of mourning and sadness that you bring into it. Because uh, honestly, as you look around the room, there's unique stories in here. We've all got things that we're going through. But honestly, we also are part of some bigger stories, aren't we? I mean, if you look at uh, what used to be the headlines on the newspaper, uh, they seem to be monopolized by kind of the bad news. Like, I mean, the headlines uh, on the front page are typically things that someone's, someone's done or there's been a problem somewhere or there's been a catastrophe, uh, you know, something like that. And maybe somewhere even on the front page, there might be a little article there about something good just to kind of tone it down a little bit. But uh, now what used to be headlines has turned into news feeds uh, on our social media or it's been something, maybe you get that news feed, news alert every day, and it tells you kind of the, the current happenings in the world. And it seems like, well, honestly, eight or nine times out of 10, it, it, it's not pleasant news. I mean, there's just some difficult things that are going on. And it can feel like, honestly, between the unique things that I'm going through myself and maybe the things that we're collectively experiencing in a particular cultural moment like we're in, it can seem a little bit overwhelming, the bad news. It seems like just the worst becomes the clickbait for our life. It becomes a thing that we go back to and it becomes the controlling narrative of our life. And then you couple that with the fact that on our planet, there's uh, I think the current tally somewhere around 7.8 billion people on our planet. And if you were to couple all those unique stories and if you were to uh, uh, basically amass all those headlines into one thing, you, you just got a big mess. I mean, there's a big mess that's going on out there. And into that void, I mean, we're all looking for an escape, let's be honest. We're looking for some inspiration. We're looking for a way out. We're looking at a way to handle the worst things of our life. And into that void, into that chaos, comes the resurrection. And the resurrection is the moment where the statement by God has been made that though there are some worst things, it seems like, in our lives, the worst things are never the last things. You know, frequently what we do is um, we look to try to find some inspiration. And one of the ways we do that is uh, we, we'll do that uh, uh, in movies. I mean, one of the ways that we do that oftentimes is we'll pay good money just for an hour and a half or two hours of inspiration. Uh, and I thought I would share with you three of my most uh, uh, inspirational movies, right? Maybe they're yours too. I don't know what yours are. But the first one is this. This is the number three on the list. Uh, you remember this guy, Rudy? Remember him? This is when Samwise Ganji from Lord of the Rings went and played football for Notre Dame. Some of y'all got that. That was for a particular segment of the crowd, okay? The nerd part of the crowd that I'm in. Uh, but, you know, it's a story. He's undersized, and he's not really qualified, doesn't make it, uh, and all the things you got to play to play Division I football. He gets on the team, and uh, the story is just kind of uh, this hard-fought thing just to get in the game, you know? And then finally, it's kind of that last year, he's been through so much difficulty and so much turmoil, and he finally, he comes back, and the whole stadium's chanting, Rudy, y'all want to do it with me? No, y'all don't have to do it. But they're chanting, Rudy, you know, and he runs out on the field, he gets a big tackle. I mean, it's this moment, I mean, it's climactic, it's beautiful. It's a comeback story, you know? 
and, and still, like, it kind of stirs up positive feelings in my mind, you know? And for an hour and a half or so, uh, I'm on the field with Rudy. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at Notre Dame, and I'm feeling what he's feeling, and uh, I come through my own little uh, things that I'm battling against, and I'm like, okay, I mean, I can walk out there, and I can attack it. I can go against the giants in my life and all those type of things, and I can play my game, you know? But that's not even my favorite. My second favorite is familiar to us. You remember this guy, Daniel? Daniel LaRusso, my namesake, right? Uh, Daniel LaRusso is a, a beautiful story in his own right, uh, popularized now through Cobra Kai on Netflix. If you're a, a Netflix binge washer, uh, he's, brought it, uh, he's been brought into a new generation. And, uh, you know, he, he goes to this new place in California. He's with a single mom, and uh, they're trying to make the best they can. They don't have any money, and he gets bullied in school and, uh, by these, uh, this, group, this karate gang, you know. And uh, the, thing whole, the whole thing builds up to this karate tournament and this moment that you see right here where where he's going against the, the main bully, who, which we learn in Cobra Kai is not the whole story, right? We know it's not the whole story, but uh, in the 80s, it was the whole story. This was the story. It comes down to this moment. Uh, he, he's been bullied. He's been beaten up. And then it comes back to the crane kick, which looks like a perfectly defensible kick. Let's just be honest, honest about it. Uh, but he snaps that kick. He snaps Johnny's head back, and then everybody celebrates. It's a great comeback story. It stands the test of time, you know. Uh, that's why they can make a Netflix series about it in 2021, and you'll all watch it. Well, some of you will watch it. But that's not my favorite. My favorite, quite honestly, is a guy named Rocky Balboa. All right, anybody with me? We like this guy. Uh, he's a no-name. Uh, he would call himself a no-name bum, you know, from Philadelphia. Uh, he, uh, you know, didn't have any money, didn't have a way up, and he gets uh, called upon to, to fight the, uh, the, the champion of the world, uh, Apollo Creed. And it's this huge buildup, and uh, one of my favorite scenes is kind of like, it's not the fight scene. My favorite scene, honestly, is the night before the fight, uh, and he is uh, in turmoil. He's got this new fight, uh, this fight tomorrow, and he's got this feeling, and he's this angst, and he's going around the city, and he goes to the, to the, uh, the, the Coliseum where the fight's going to take place and all that kind of stuff. And the guy that's promoting the fight said, hey, you're going to give everybody a really good show. And he feels belittled in the moment. He goes back home, and he talks to Adrian. Uh, the woman in his life, you know, the love of his life. And he says, I can't beat him. I just want to go the distance. And now who makes a movie about a comeback story about somebody that doesn't even win? But that's the story of Rocky in Rocky 1. He, he does what he set out to do. He doesn't win the fight in Rocky 1, spoiler alert. But he makes it. He does what he's called to do. And that sets on the comeback saga of the year because that theme of Rocky 1 actually also happened in Rocky 2 and then Rocky three, and then Rocky four, and then Rocky five, and on and on. And people kept watching. We keep watching. Because even if it's for an hour and a half, we will pay good money for a little inspiration, won't we? And I say that because sometimes we come into Easter and we dress up and we do the thing. And we're in the South, and so we know the routine. But sometimes we treat Easter like it's just another inspirational story. But I want to be really clear today that our prayer for you is that this is not a poetic metaphor for your life. That the story of Easter is not a story at all. As a matter of fact, Easter is not a story, it's an event. It's a moment in time. It's a time in history where God didn't just give us temporary inspiration that doesn't last for an hour and a half or maybe a week. It doesn't just give you a little bit more willpower to make it through a difficult month or decade or season he got to the core of all of our issue because here's the thing though we all have unique issues we all have one singular issue and that's the problem of sin in our life we have a common enemy and it's not a college football team it's not a, a guy in a black karate suit and it's not a world champion boxing champion of the world it's sin and death but here's the thing, the tension that we all feel at Easter and the need for inspiration speaks to the fact that it is a juxtaposition, a contrast between the expectations and the reality that we feel. And as we press into the reality today, what I want you to know is that the realization of the event of the resurrection actually happens in the dark. 
The realization of the, of the resurrection actually happens in the dark. And just to set the stage for us, a lot of us feel like we should be somewhere we're not. And that if we could get to another place where everything was kind of calm and, and everything was just the way it was supposed to be, or maybe you came in today and you're like, hey, yeah, I'm doing pretty, pretty good. I feel like everything's okay. I, I'm not really connected. I wasn't depressed, but now I'm really depressed after hearing you talk about all that kind of stuff. But what I want to suggest to you today that you don't have to be in the light to find Jesus. Jesus meets you in the dark. And the story of the resurrection begins in the dark. Matter of fact, the Gospel of John, the, one of the four biographies of Jesus, uh, the Apostle John, he shares the story. And this is how he begins what would be the event of Easter, the resurrection Sunday. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. You see, the beginning of the story for, for John is in the dark, and uh, he sets up this motif through his whole gospel, and we're not going to go into it, but if you've been with us very long, you, you, you've heard us talk about this. Matter of fact, Christmas, we talked about it. For, for John, Jesus was the, the true life that gives light to everyone, and, and it culminates even in Jesus' own statement about himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says that I am the light of the world. And constantly in, in John, he's using this, uh, this contrast between light and dark, and he uses it to tell the story of Jesus. And you can see that, right? Because darkness becomes synonymous with doubt and confusion, like it, like it happens with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Or it, it, it talks about sickness and blindness, like in John chapter 9, where the man that was born blind couldn't see, and Jesus heals him, and he can see, and he sees light. And then you, you see it also, don't you, when in the story of uh, when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to walk and express light through his words and it brings illumination to the world around him. And so it's interesting that what John does is he likes to tell the story of darkness and light. And so it's fitting that when you get to John 20, you don't begin with the sun shining uh, in the east I drove in today, and uh, Callie and I were in the truck, and we looked into the east, and we saw this great gleaming orange ball in the sky, and it was beautiful. I hope you got to see it. Uh, if you slept in, I, I, I totally get that too. Uh, but it's just a beautiful thing. But early in the morning, while it was still dark, the realization of the resurrection happened. And we're told that it happened on a very personal level. Uh, we're introduced uh, to the first person that actually saw the risen Lord. And actually, she was actually the same person that was the first person to actually proclaim the gospel. She was the one to carry the good news of the resurrection back to the other disciples. Her name was Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, her name, last name is actually not Magdalene. It's just to uh, distinguish her uh, from all the other Marys. If you've ever read the New Testament, believe me, it's confusing. All the Marys that are in there, now, which Mary is this? And Magdalene is just a reference to the city that she was from, from Magdala. Uh, and it's a way to denote the fact that she was from a different place and delineate the fact that she was not, not the Mary mother of Jesus or one of the other Marys. She was Mary from a particular city. And we're not told a lot about her, uh, quite honestly, uh, though it's a very personal story. Three of the four gospel writers, they actually only tell her story in reference to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only time you actually f see her appear by name. But fortunately, we're introduced to her in one of the gospels, in Luke's gospel. And in Luke chapter 8, we're introduced to her, and it tells us something about her. And it gives context to that dark moment on Sunday morning. And it helps us to see the event of the res resurrection, I think, a little bit more clearly. Let's introduce you to Mary. After this, Jesus traveled about from town uh, and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, diseases Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. And these women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
Now, I highlighted the phrase with him because uh, this was, uh, for the gospel writers, this was a way to denote once again that these were disciples. These were people that spent time with Jesus. If you remember uh, in Matthew chapter 4 is a good uh, example of this. When Jesus calls his first disciples, he calls them to be with him. Uh, Matthew actually refers to that over and over again. So do the other gospel writers, that to be with Jesus was to follow him as a disciple, to learn from him because Primarily, a disciple means to be a learner. Uh, sometimes you might call it an apprentice, to, to learn and to actually be changed by the message of the rabbi that was teaching you and to shape your life around him. And so uh, Jesus had a lot of disciples. He had the 12, but uh, you, you get named other disciples. In this case, you have some of the women disciples. And then you have some other cases where there were 72 or 120 that were referenced. And, 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 and sometimes we kind of uh, buy into this whole thing. Well, there's only 12, but no, there was a, a lot of people whose life had been changed by Jesus. And one of those particular people that were with him as a disciple was this woman named Mary from Magdala. And what we learn from her, some important things that actually sets up that tension that we feel. Because Easter morning was, again, in the dark. It was a moment of tension between darkness and light. If you look at that same passage, and I, I highlight a few different words for you that kind of helps us to understand her a little bit better. Remember what it said at the beginning that uh, Jesus was traveling about, and what was he doing? He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. You see, one thing that defined Mary in her life was what she had heard, the things that she heard from Jesus. Uh, Jesus actually went about, uh, it would say he would go out and proclaiming this same message. Again, we're in Luke's gospel at this point, and Luke tells us what that message is. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, it's actually the first time Jesus preaches a message that's recorded. And Luke chapter 4, if we run to that slide, I think it's two slides ahead of that one. This is Jesus' first sermon, and we've, we've said this around here before. You're probably familiar with it a little bit, but he unrolls us. Uh, he's in the synagogue. He unrolls a scroll from the prophet Isaiah that actually called forward to God's promised Messiah. He, he picks up this scroll, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here's what Mary heard. This was the thing that Jesus proclaimed. This was the good news that Luke was talking about in Luke chapter 8 that uh, he was going about sharing everywhere was the fact that he was the long-promised Messiah that was going to right every wrong. He was, going to, uh, he was going to come and bring hope to the hopeless. He was going to have uh, the blind see again, the deaf hear again. He was going to, have to see the lame walk again, the dead rise back to life. He was going to change everything. And not was it just a personal hope. This was a national hope. Uh, Israel has so long been outside the will of God, and they were trying to make their way back. And for centuries, they had been calling out in hope that God would send a redeemer. God would send a Messiah. God would send a king. And so when Jesus proclaimed this word that day in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown of Nazareth, people were shocked because they knew this guy. He was a, they would say things, well, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son, and he had a scandalous beginning that would not lead you to believe this was the king of the Jews. But people were mesmerized, and they would say they were amazed because of the authority in which he spoke. And he didn't just preach that once. Matter of fact, in that same chapter in Luke chapter 4, it actually says what he, what he said was his mission. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He kept on preaching. He kept on taking this message to city after city, to town after town, to synagogue after synagogue. And along the way, he met people. People would hear him speak, and people would say, these words are not like any other words. This is not another inspirational story. There's something different about this man. And this is what Mary heard. It's what we're told about in Luke chapter 8 most powerful speaker the world's ever known because it was the one who created speech, the one who was the word, the one who created the ability to hear actually became the word in flesh. And when he spoke, all of the universe beheld his glory. And this is what Mary heard. But it wasn't just what she heard. It was also what she had seen. I mean, the beauty about the gospel is that it's not just something you proclaim, it's something that has a thousand and one implications. 
And if you follow along the story of Jesus, which I highly encourage you to read over this season and just refresh you and be revived in the story and the person of Jesus, he didn't just go around preaching rhetoric. He didn't just come making empty promises. Where he went, lives were changed. And people saw it. Matter of fact, that chapter where we were introduced to Mary in Luke chapter 8, there was a few other episodes immediately following that. The, the three episodes right after we're introduced uh, to Mary Magdalene uh, was this one, the story where Jesus calms the storm. You remember when he steps out there and he speaks to the winds and waves and the question was asked, well, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey this man? It was confounding and confronting, but this was the God that wasn't just coming to preach and talk about things. He had power over the created elements of the world. He could push back darkness. He could silence the waves, and the wind. And right after that is another famous story. It's one of my favorites, actually. It's because it's so crazy, right? There's some crazy stuff in the Bible, let's be honest. And right after that, Jesus restores this demon-possessed man. He casts demons out of him, and he sends them into a group of pigs, and they go off a cliff, right? You need to read it sometimes. It's a, it's a crazy story. And it's one of those things where we look at it, and we're like, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, maybe you come in here, you're not predisposed, right, to really believe in demonic stuff and things like that. But listen, we're talking about a guy raising, being raised from the dead. So all bets are off, right? Uh, if we could just kind of think for a second that this is God coming in the flesh, not just to talk about things and not just to speak to the physical universe, but to actually deliver people from true oppression, the things that are at the core of who we are. And then the story immediately following that is such a sensitive story. It's actually two stories wrapped up into one. Jesus gets a call that uh, there's, a woman, there's a little girl that's sick and that she's on the verge of death. And he's making his way to her. And on the way, he's going through a crowd and there's a woman that reaches out, touches the hem of his garment. She has an issue of blood, it says. Immediately, the glory departs from Jesus and her life has changed. She's immediately healed. And he says, who touched me? And in that moment, people saw what it was like for the glory of God to actually physically heal somebody. But what the story is beautiful because he doesn't just end in the crowd. Jesus goes into the bedroom of this little girl. And by the time he got there, because he paused in this one episode, she passes away. And he goes to the woman, he, to the little girl, and the whole, the whole house is mourning, as you would if you'd lost a daughter. And he says, little girl, get up. And so whether it was Jesus calming the storm or whether it was releasing demonic oppression and seeing this uh, unbelievable sight or whether it was the sensitive moment of a woman that had been riddled with pain and sadness and ostracism for her whole life or the endless hopelessness of a lost daughter in a home. Jesus, in all those situations, stepped in and people saw him. You see, this is the Jesus that Mary saw. She heard him. She'd seen him. But probably the most important thing was not just what she'd seen, what she'd heard, but it was what she had experienced. See, it wasn't just like one of those things where you see God work in somebody else's life and you kind of can qualify it and say, well, that's great that that happened to them, but me, you know, no, for her, it was very personal because she herself had experienced healing. She had heard the words of life herself, and it had changed her. Remember what happened in Luke chapter 8, the way she's described? It says that Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. In that culture, if you, had, um, if you were suspected to be oppressed by demonic uh, beings, you would have been ostracized from the community because it, it would have signified the curse of God. Uh, and that would have happened normally uh, in most situations. You hear stories like this of demon-possessed people in the, in the scriptures, and they were out in a cave somewhere or something like that, or they, were, they would try to bind them and try to protect people from them and stuff like that. But if you were a woman in the first century, uh, you would have a particular uh, dynamic of uh, being ostracized from the community, uh, ostracized from your family. And so not only was she under demonic presence, uh, everything would suggest that she was alone. She was alone. But something happened, and we're not even told the story. I wish we were, and hopefully maybe someday we'll get to know it uh, when we meet Jesus. But Jesus stepped into her pain. He stepped into her moment. 
He delivered her from her oppression and he brought her close. And what Luke chapter 8 suggests is that she was introduced to a whole new family. A group of people that were around her that supported her, that loved her, that welcomed her in and honored her in a place where the world around her would not. You see, she had experienced some things. And, and what do you do like, when, when that happens? When you've heard these kind of things and when you've seen this kind of stuff and when you've personally experienced this kind of powerful transformation, well, what do you do? Well, you do what she did. It was, she began to invest in it. So it wasn't just what she heard and what she'd seen. What does it say there? It says that she, they, they began to supply for Jesus. They began, began to invest in his story. It's what you do when something really impacts you. Uh, It's where you can't help yourself, you know. It's when like, hey, man, if this happened to me, I I want that to happen to somebody else. That's why some of you give to church. It's why you give to other charitable uh, uh, organizations. It's like, man, I I can get in their shoes. I know what it's like, and it's worth everything that I have. This is the model that we pick up even in Acts where they shared all their possessions. Why? Because what do you do? When you meet Jesus and he's actually transformed your life, when you've heard this, when you've seen this, when you've experienced this, well, it's not worthy of just a little here and there. It's worthy of my entire life, all that I have. And they became the financial contributors, the the investors, if you will, in this kingdom mission of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a total transformation. And this is Mary Magdalene, as Luke tells her story. But what's interesting to me is after everything that she had heard, everything that she had seen, everything that she had experienced, and what she had spent the last several years of her life investing in and listening to, when it came to the darkness of Easter, it was like she couldn't find any of that. Matter of fact, the story is told in verse 2 where she runs She runs up to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loves, and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. There's not a moment that's suggested in John's gospel where she stops and says, you know, huh? maybe I remember him talking about the fact that three days later he was going to rise again. She had been privy to information like that as a disciple. She had heard Jesus probably say things like, if they tear this temple down, I'm going to raise it again in three days. But like the other disciples, there was nobody on that dark morning that was standing outside the tomb going 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, stone rolled away, cue Jesus coming forth. We've been waiting for this. No, nobody was there. Nobody expected. Not even the one that had seen what she had seen, heard what she had heard, experienced what she had experienced, and invested in what she had invested in. And I think there's a reason for that. For one, I think that, honestly, let's just be completely human for a second. This is a hard concept to grasp. Let's not miss the fact that we're talking about a man rising from the dead. People don't just do that. And sometimes we're what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we think, well, we've come so advanced that the people behind us, generations behind us, well, they were so antiquated and uncivilized, and man, they didn't know what we know. And so they were probably just really predisposed to believe this kind of craziness. And, and some of you are coming in with this, and it's perfectly legitimate. I, I think we're all, like, on some level, we have to wrestle with the fact of like, okay, did this guy really rise from the dead? It doesn't match with the way I see the world. It helps when you know that people in Jesus' day, didn't, they weren't predisposed to believe in resurrection. The Greeks didn't even believe in resurrection as a, as a phenomenon. And if the Jews did believe in it, they believed that it was at the end of time when, Jesus, when God was going to resurrect all those that had gone before and he was going to usher in a whole new civilization. And, but they didn't think about these one-offs, right? And they certainly didn't think about God becoming flesh and individually dying, being buried in being raised again. And so they were not predisposed, even the fact that they were centuries before us. It's just hard to move past worldview. It's, it's hard to move past embedded theology. And we all have that. We all have things that we already just kind of naturally believe. And so the idea that Jesus would actually do this, even if you'd seen all this stuff, it just didn't fit. Didn't fit into reality. 
But I think it's more than that. I think it's a lot more personal. Because in the chapter preceding chapter 20, when he's resurrected, we have the moment of his crucifixion. And this is where we see Mary Magdalene. And where do we see her? Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. See why we've got to have Magdalene? There's three Marys right there in that one sentence, right? Where was she? She was near the cross. She had a front row seat to the worst day in history. And I love the fact that John doesn't say that she saw from a distance she was near. She was close where she could smell the smells. She could hear the cries. And she could feel the pain. You see, crucifixion was uh, a process uh, that was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. It was a, a particular grueling process that was initiated and concocted in order to inflict the most amount of pain, physical pain you can, for the longest amount of time. And over time, they had perfected this art. And uh, it, if you follow Jesus' story, you could see it. I mean, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was spat upon, he was mocked, scourged, crown of thorns. But it wasn't just about the physical nature of the pain, though that's grueling enough. It was also a process meant to inflict the most amount of shame as possible. Most of the time, the person on the cross was stripped naked, bare in front of everyone, mocked and ridiculed for the physical makeup. And this is what she saw. She saw what she had seen before, what she had heard before, what she had experienced before, what she had invested in. She saw it die. And it's just really hard, isn't it, when you're that near to pain, to suspend belief? And so I think on the dark morning, she did what only would be logical for someone that saw what she saw. She cried. In John 20, verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb and she's crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now, I don't know if this is because angels are not very smart or, uh, forgive me, Lord, I don't think that's true, okay? I think it's probably dramatic effect, but I also think it's going to set up another question but here's what she summarizes or surmises from the situation. They say, why are you crying? And I, this thing I believe about Mary, I think after everything she'd been through, she was honest and direct. She was a strong person. And so she turns and she says to them, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. She doesn't have time for long conversations. She's got a mission on her mind. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. The only thing that she could figure in this moment was that someone had stolen the body. And this has been a popular thing through the ages or you know, centuries. You know, people look back and they're like, well, apparently somebody would have stolen the body because people just don't get up. And this is what she thought. She thought, well, somebody must have stolen the body. But this is a deep pain for her because not only did she watch Jesus die, she was not even allowed to mourn properly. Jesus was taken down off the cross hurriedly with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and they rushed him to a borrowed tomb, placed him in the tomb because uh, the weekend was upon them, Sabbath was upon them. And so they didn't have time to prepare uh, as they would like to have prepared and the women were not allowed to mourn in the way that they were supposed to mourn and honor the body. And so they were making their way that day to do what they couldn't do before and as they got there, they were not even provided the outlet of actually being able to mourn. I mean, it's one thing to have lost, but imagine, get in her mind for a second. What's it like to have the body of the one who changed your life stolen? And so, of course, she's going to cry in that moment. And so she's looking for Jesus. She's searching for Jesus. And I think the way John tells the story is important because, once again, she's completely alone isolated in the dark. And in that moment in the darkness, she's crying, she turns. 
as she turns, she sees Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. And, and there's a lot to be made of this, and there's a lot of different opinions, and I think there's a lot of valid opinions about this. I mean, there's frequent stories after Jesus' resurrection of people not initially recognizing him as a glorified body. He didn't look like he did on the cross, obviously. And so what did he look like? And did he look like the same person? And there's a lot of those things. But I think it's a lot simpler than that in John's telling of the story. I think it's dark. And she's been crying. And I don't think it's that crying that you're kind of like wiping your nose because you got a little sniffle. I think this is uncontrollable crying where the tears won't stop. I mean, we're within three days of this event and now you've, been, you've added insult to injury. She can't find her way and she's dark. It's dark and she's alone once again. And so into that, Jesus speaks to her. She's the first one to hear the voice of Jesus. And what does he say? Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, I don't know if this is just Jesus has got jokes or what, but I think he's actually doing something to lead her to the question of what she's all looking for. Because here's what's happened when you've lost something. And you've lost something in here. I know you have. You're looking for something. And some of you are in a position right now where you've lost something and you're looking for something. Some of you are, are looking for things just to even out. You're looking for a break. Some of you are looking for the answers that are deep in your soul that you, you now find yourself in midlife and they, the answers that you thought you had in your 30s didn't pan out. Some of you have lost a relationship. You've lost a spouse. You've lost a marriage. Some of you have lost a job. And you're searching and you're looking and you're looking. And I think what if it is that Jesus is asking you, hey, what are you looking for? What are you really looking for? I think that's the question that Jesus poses to us. In the middle of loss, in the middle of loneliness, in the middle of sadness, in the darkness, who is it you're looking for? And it's not a what, it's a who. But she doesn't recognize him. Matter of fact, John 20 verse 15 says that she was thinking he was the gardener. And that makes sense. There, the tomb was in a garden. We're told that. And the, gar the gardener was the one that was the caretaker, caretaker of the garden. And he would have been at work early in the day. And so she assumes, so who else is going to be here this early than the caretaker of the garden? It's the gardener. And she says once again, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Man, I love this woman, right? I mean, she's fierce. I mean, I don't know what she's going to do. Is she going to like load the body up and take it back? I mean, I don't know what she's going to do, but she's like, listen, this is somebody that's going to take control. Because what do you do when you're in a difficult spot in the darkness is you've got to assert control. I'm going to do this. But here's the truth is she's in a moment and Jesus is in front of her, but she cannot see Jesus through her tears and through the darkness until verse 16. And Jesus simply says to her, Mary. And I think it's important there's a period there, not an exclamation point, because I don't think it's like, Mary, settle down. I think he calmly, intimately, personally says, Mary. And what you have here is you, you have a picture of someone in the darkness and the loneliness in the clarity of seeing that God, through Jesus, actually steps into the darkness with you. He meets you exactly where you are in all your fear. I think at this point in the story, she's actually angry. I mean, you pick it up in what I just read, right? Like, where is he? What'd you do with him? You just, just tell me where you put him, and I'll get him. Because when the fear goes deep enough and the depression gets strong enough, a lot of times, what was our response? We're just going to pour out anger. And she's going through all the periods of mourning. And then Jesus steps in and he calmly says to her her name. He says it intimately. He says it personally. And it's exactly what Luke described earlier in his gospel when he says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will know my voice. She heard Jesus. And she turns toward him. She turns toward him and she cries out in Aramaic. She says, Rabboni, which means teacher. You may have heard 
the title rabbi before. I mean, it's a common title. It means teacher, but she uses uh, a specific uh, title. It's a little of an embellishment on the title. She says, Rabboni, which is actually my teacher. It's my teacher. The one that she sat at the feet of and she learned from. The one that she was discipled by. The one that she was on mission with. And so when he says this, it's like everything, all the world, it was not an inspirational story. It was an event in that moment. Everything changed for her. Why? Because she was looking for him, but he found her. He found her. And what if the thing that you're looking for is the fact that Jesus has already been looking for you? He's stepping into your moment right now. He's stepping into your doubt and questions where the darkness is, the confusion that you feel, the the anger you might have toward him or toward the church or toward someone else. He's stepping into all that and he's saying, listen, I have found you. I found you. You see, that's the event that is Easter. And the way that the story plays out It's like it always does. It doesn't just stay contained to the darkness. In verse 17, it says that Jesus told her, don't hold on to me. (laughs) That would have been so tempting, wouldn't it? After everything you've been through, to hug him and hold on to him. But he says, I'm not ascended to the Father. I'm not finished yet. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and say to my brothers, the ones that weren't there, and I want you to tell them, I'm ascending to the Father and your Father to my God and your God Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, the gospel. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she, that he had said these things to her. I'd seen the Lord. The, the tears were wiped away. The darkness was dispelled. And she was looking at the face of Jesus. As I look around the room, I, I suggested this at the beginning, that there's... There's darkness in all of us that's unique to us. But the call for all of us is the same. The God wants you to see the Lord. But for some of you, it may be your guilt. Some of you, there's something you've done. Maybe it was this weekend, last week, last month, this past year. Maybe it was a decade ago. Maybe it was in your teenage years and you just can't get past it. And you feel guilt because of what it cost you, but not just what it cost you, what it cost somebody close to you, a spouse, a friend, a daughter, a job, a business. And you just can't get over it. You, you, You feel like I can't ever get out of this consuming darkness. Well, the resurrection's realized in the darkness. Some of you, it's not guilt. Some of you just carry around shame. There's things that people don't know about you that you don't want to get out. Maybe your spouse doesn't know, your kids don't know, the preacher doesn't know. It's your private thoughts, it's your wrestlings, it's, it's things that's going on in your mind, in your life, and you just feel ashamed for that. And, and it's preventing you from seeing Jesus. You, you can't even see Jesus in the darkness. But the resurrection's realized in the darkness. For some of you, it's loss. You've lost someone close to you. Someone that was gone too soon. And I mean, I've been doing this long enough. I've done way too many funerals of friends, of family members, people that should still be here in my mind. I've said to God things like, I don't think that's fair. Some of you... It's close to home because this past year you lost somebody. And if you could bring them back, you would. You wouldn't wish what you feel on anybody. You just feel this sense of loss and sadness. And you don't know if you're ever going to get out of the darkness. You don't know. But the resurrection is realized in the darkness. For some of you, it's an addiction. You've, uh, you've tried You've made promises to yourself, to others. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do this again. You've, you've, you've read books about it. You've listened to podcasts about it. You've put more willpower than you know how to muster toward it. And you're at the point of giving up. 
Because you're like, man, this darkness, I just cannot get over this thing. It just pulls me back in. The darkness is just so strong. But the resurrection is realized in the darkness. For some of you, it's a sickness. Man, you, you didn't ever think it would happen to you. You didn't ever think you'd feel what you feel. Started out, you didn't have the energy you once did. You went to the doctor, you got a report. You were hoping it was good news and it wasn't. And maybe it's a terminal situation or it's just something you got to live with. But either way, it's dark. And you try to put on a good face and you try to capture the moments. But man, I had so much life to live. It's dark, right? And those are might be your unique things. There might be something that I didn't even mention that you say, damn, that's me. But here's the thing. In all those situations, the, the realization of the resurrection happens in the dark. But here's the thing. All of us, whether or not you share one of those stories or things are going okay right now, could I suggest to you that there is a darkness that you all have and that we all have together? Can we just be honest that we have a darkness of sin? I mean, I wish it wasn't true. I wish I didn't have to be the one to tell you, but you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. Scripture says that. And you didn't even have to have Scripture tell you that. You, you've experienced it. It's caused problems in you. You've failed time and time again. And Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It says that no man can come to the Father except through Jesus. And... You've been carrying around the weight of your sin, and it is dark. And no doctor can help you. No preacher can help you. No spouse can help you. It takes God himself stepping in to help you. Because what Jesus came to do is he came to absorb all of your sins. Scripture says, Paul would say it later to the church at Corinth. He says that he would become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He didn't die for your sin. He became your sin. So that all the darkness would be consumed. So that the light that is Jesus could shine forth. Why? Because the sin that we all carry around with us, the guilt, the shame, the loss, the addiction, all the manifestations and the symptoms we all deal with all lead to one destination that we all fight, and that's death. But there's a point for all of us into the future. There's a destination that we're all aiming toward. And the older I get the more I come to terms with my own mortality. And I think the good news of Easter is the realization that into the darkness of death came the light of the Jesus so that the resurrection would mean that the worst thing is never the last thing. And as we finish this Easter, what I would love to do is I would love this not to be a, a poetic metaphor of inspiration for a minute for you. I would like for this to become a life-changing event in your history so that you would walk forward into all those things and whatever you have to face and into eternity and you would have the confidence and the security of knowing where you stand with this God that gave up everything for you because he's speaking your name. He's looking in your eyes. And so what I would like to do is if you've never done that before, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer. Uh, there's no magic words. They're words to actually speak what's resonating in your heart. But in order to help, I'm going to put a prayer up here. And if you need to accept Jesus and to follow him as your Lord, would you just say this out loud with me? Uh, we're not going to do the whole thing, the preacher gig, where I say every head bowed and every eye is closed. I'm going to say every head up and every eye open. And I'm going to ask you to say this. For some of us, it'll be a reminder of what's true. And for some of us, it'd be the first time we've said to God, what is true? You don't have to say it out loud. You can speak it directly to God inside your mind and inside your heart. But would you say this with me? I'll read it. and You can read along. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead and is alive today. I place my faith in him as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me new life. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may ask the question, is it that simple? Could it be that simple? Yeah, it can. It could be the beginning point because all the work's been done. Because that dark morning, the sun continued to come up and light grew. And much like that dawning of that day today, if you pray that prayer for the first time, it could be the sun rising in your life. And it's not the end. It is only the beginning of following Jesus. And we would love to walk that journey with you. Matter of fact, Adam mentioned this in the beginning. I'm going to ask if everybody would take this card out in your seat. I'd like everybody to do it. And um, obviously, if you've uh, made a decision of some sort today or you feel God speaking to you, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and fill this out. But what I'm going to ask you to do is if you've been here forever and you did not make a decision, I'm going to ask you if you would do something in support of those that need a little bit of boost so that they're not alone. I'm going to ask everybody to fill this out so that they see everybody around the room filling this out together. To give everyone a nudge to say you're not alone in this. But if today you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, would you check, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. And we're not going to hound you or anything like that. We just want to pray for you and we want to help you be resourced in what God's calling you to do. Uh, you don't have to become a member of our church. You don't even have to live in our city. Uh, we just believe that this is a life-changing event and we want to help you. So would you fill that out and would you check that for us? Some of you need to be baptized. Um, you kind of made your... Uh, personal faith, a private one instead of a public one. Jesus calls you to a public display of faith through baptism. And we would love to help you kind of entertain that thought and where you need to go in obedience to him. And so would you check that? For some of you, you need to get plugged in. It's been a long year. We've been detached. You want to get involved in community and service, membership, all those things. There's ways you can do that. If you would, at the very least, just jot down a prayer request that would give us the privilege of praying for you. And all you have to do in a minute is just leave that right where you sit. You don't have to take it anywhere. You don't have to talk to anybody today. You could just leave it right there. We'll pick it up. It'll be private. Nobody else is going to see it except our staff. Um, we're going to look at that. We're going to pray for you and help you. And if you need to be refreshed today and you're here, I believe God is nudging us forward into new life together as followers of him. And so let's do this. Let's pray now and let's thank him, God. Let's thank God for his gift of his son. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you died on that cross for us. We thank you that you did not stay dead, but you're resurrected to give us hope and life. I thank you for all the people in this room, brothers and sisters in this uh, human endeavor. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them today with more than just a little inspiration, but today they would walk with you and be encouraged in that daily pursuit, daily journey with you over time. Lord, we see you for who you are. We thank you for making yourself known that you're not hidden. And so we see you today and we look to you for salvation. We thank you for this Easter. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.